This is class number two. Our speaker is Brother John Martin. His subject, subject is, Let Him That Thinketh He Standeth. Today's title is, Now As, thi now as Touching Things Offered Unto Idols. My dear brethren and sisters, we spent yesterday morning trying to uh, give you some of the background of the turbulent Corinthian Ecclesia where there were many, many problems coming from this cosmopolitan society out of which the Ecclesia, of course, was developed. But of course, now we come to consider that section when Paul says, now as touching things offered unto idols. And, he, and he's going to talk, brothers and sisters, about the sensitivity that some had of eating meat which had been offered unto idols, and those who considered that to be nothing of importance. And we need to make a statement at the beginning of our address so that there's no misunderstanding, and I hope the tape is, is working, because I want this to be recorded, that nobody misunderstands, and it's the point that Brother David made in his session this morning, and that is this. That when we're talking about these issues, brothers and sisters, where we should make allowances for each other in these matters, we are not talking about fundamental issues of doctrinal practice. Please understand that. Let's not have any, mis any misunderstanding. The issues we're talking about is those issues which are, are really no issues, but which can divide brothers and sisters if we're not very careful with our attitude one to each other. So the question was, uh, can we eat meat often offered unto idols, or can we not? Okay, just check my wallet. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Any rate, that's the question. Not my wallet, the meat. Now, and, and you see, brothers and sisters, in this particular case, there was an added ingredient. We must understand this. Uh, this evening when we have our slideshow on the land, I will show in, in preface to that night, I'm going to show you the pictures of Corinth, and you will see that Corinth nestled at the base of a very high mountain right behind it, the only one. It was visible for miles, and I'll show you that. It stood out like a lighthouse. And Corinth was at the base of that mountain, and that mountain had a flat top on it, and up there there was a restaurant come temple. And people could go up there, uh, like to have a night out, and to have their, have, their, have their evening meal up there. And they could eat the things up there which were cooked for them, but it was also the temple of the Aphrodite. And the Aphrodite, of course, we get an English word from that, brothers and sisters, the Aphrodite. And the worship of the goddess Aphrodite was the worship of sexual depravity. And up on that mountain there were a thousand priestesses who were prostitutes up there acting as waitresses in that temple. So it was a little bit more than eating meat up on, on, under idols. Uh, there were dangerous things, brothers and sisters, in association with this. So it had that extra ingredient in it. Now, in this particular controversy, in 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, uh, there are two classes in the Ecclesia. They were, they were divided on their attitude over eating this meat. And Paul, for the sake of better words, called one group the strong, and the other group he called the weak. 
Now the strong are described in verse 8 or verse 6 of chapter 8. He said, but to us. So you see, Paul intellectually agreed with the strong. I say intellectually. But to us, he says, that is the strong, uh, there is but one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. We know that, he said. So an idol is nothing in the world. It is nothing. It doesn't exist. And therefore it can't in any way, shape, or form affect the quality of meat. We know that. So he agreed with the strong. Uh, but verse 7, he said, How be... Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol eat it, this, eat it unto this hour as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Uh, they were weak, brethren and sisters. Uh, they thought that, oh, I wouldn't touch that. Oh, don't go near that because it's been offered to an idol. And they gave some reality to the idol when it was not a reality. Now they were wrong. Their understanding of that was deficient. We're going to see, brothers and sisters, and it's marvellous how this is done. We're going to see how this argument develops that in the end, the strong become weak and the weak become strong in a most remarkable fashion. And Paul was a wonderful man. He had one of the most wonderful and deep appreciations of human nature and the workings of human nature. He, 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 brothers and sisters, is one of those people that I can really associate with him. I really understand how he ticks because he, he can see right through people and issues. He was such a marvellous diplomat in all that he ever did. Uh, I love the apostle because of that. And he was disturbed that this a question of eating meat one, offered to idols or another, he was disturbed because it had divided the ecclesia into these attitudes. So you had the strong who knew everything. We know that an idol is nothing in the world. And so their attitude was one of disdain and contempt for people with lesser knowledge than we've got. Now, on the other hand, the weak brother who, who felt that he, you know, he was doing the right thing by not touching this and not touching that, he looked upon the strong as uh, people who were liberal, you know, who, who didn't realise the, 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 the dangers of the world and, and the liberal. And furthermore, among the weak, uh, there were those who, well, they had another attitude and they thought, well, if the strong brother can do it, it must be all right. And, and, and they were therefore induced into doing things which their conscience said was wrong. And so that's what was de developing in the ecclesia. Now, I might give you a little illustration to begin with, brothers and sisters, that might help you to appreciate the point I'm trying to make about issues that are not issues, and over which we ought to make allowances for each other. In my ecclesia, which is a fairly large meeting, we're a very conservative meeting where I come from, I'm an exception, uh, but in our meeting uh, we have brothers and sisters who in the memorial hymn will keep their children sitting down. My children stand up. I, I don't believe that that's right, uh, but I tell you something, I have a towering respect for their reasons why they believe it's right. 
I mean that. I have a great respect why they do that. There'd be a half a dozen families in our meeting that do that. Nobody worries about it. It doesn't worry anybody because it's always been the case and we know why they sit their children down. They feel it's the memorial hymn. Uh, therefore, we, we, we singing that hymn in, with particular reference to the emblems and they feel that their unbaptized children should not sing that hymn. That's fair enough. No argument with that. I don't agree with that, with that reasoning, but I have no argument with it. And that's a non-issue. and never been an issue in our meeting. And it's been going on for years, and no one takes any notice of that. And those who sit down don't treat those who don't with scorn, and those who stand up don't treat with scorn those who sit down. And there's no problem with the children over that. It's just not an issue because they, they sit down because they've got a conscience of the matter, and our children stand up because we got a conscience of the matter. But I want to tell you something. If every other family in our ecclesia's children sat down, so would mine. Even though I would not believe that was necessary, it wouldn't worry me an atom. My children would sit down with everybody else's children because it doesn't matter to me. My ecclesia says to me that you walk into the meeting on your hands, I walk in on my hands. Money might fall out of my pocket, but, <laughs> but that, it doesn't matter whether I walk in on my hands or my feet. It's a non-issue. And they're the things, there are little trivialities, brothers and sisters, we get all upset about it. We should never allow that. Now you turn to Romans chapter 14. Here's exactly the same principle, with a little bit of a difference. In Romans chapter 14, the Apostle told the Romans this. He says in verse 1 to 4, he said, Now look, him that is weak in the faith, receive ye, but not to doubtful disputations. For one believeth that he may eat all things, another who is weak eateth herbs. Let not him that eateth despise him that eateth not, and let not him which eateth, eateth not, judge him which eateth, for God hath received him. Who art thou that judgest another man's servant? To his own master he standeth or falleth. Yea, he shall be holden up, for God is able to make him stand. Now you see the point, brothers and sisters, it's those with, who have the sensitivity about diets that are weak. But you know, in our community, I don't know about in, in, in America, but in Australia, we have brothers and sisters who have very strong convictions about what they eat because God would have intended us to eat this or God would have intended us to eat that. And they are in the ecclesia generally looked upon as the strong. Paul says they're weak because they've forgotten that, that, that you call no creature common or unclean and all things that are received with thanksgiving, says Paul, with, uh, that whatever, God, whatever God gives us. But he says, don't argue about it. Why? Because he said, they're all God's servants. So the one who does not eat anything else but vegetables does it because he serves God. That's the, his way of saying that's his conscience. And the one who eats other things other than vegetables does it because he believes that's serving God. In whatever way, he serves God. And, and Paul said that that's, he'll answer according to his conscience. It's not to us, us to, to, to argue the point as to who's right or wrong, uh, brothers and sisters. It's, it's a question of accepting those things and respecting. Not only accepting them, but respecting the motive. The genuine motive that people might do something different than us. 
Now that is the question of eating meat unto idols. Now chapter 8 is divided like this, as Paul reasons the matter out in a most wonderful fashion. It's divided by this, he says, first of all, in verses 1 to 3, knowledge must be balanced with humility and love. And then from verses 4 to 7, Paul is in agreement in principle with the strong. But then verses 8 to 13, he says, okay, but that liberty of conscience which your knowledge gives you must not be used as a stumbling block to others. So love or knowledge must be balanced with humility and love. I agree with the strong intellectually, but be careful that by your freedom of your intellectual understanding that you by that very exercise of your freedom might cause others to stumble in the truth. That's the way this chapter is divided up. So let's have a look at the first section, brothers and sisters. Knowledge must be balanced with humility and love. Now says Paul, as things touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And the we unquestioned, I believe, is the strong. But Paul says, knowledge puffs up and love edifies. And the word edify means builds up. Now a thing can either be puffed up with wind or built up solidly. Now brethren and sisters, knowledge, gnosis, will puff up. It's not until a man or a woman gains epinosis that they come to realise what, know, what knowledge is all about. There's a difference between gnosis, knowing, and epi, full knowing things. The complete knowledge of things. And Peter uses both those terms in the second of Peter chapter 1. But just have a look at the way he uses them. And this is the difference. But in the second of Peter... We have his usage here of the, these two terms. And, and he says in verse 1, of chapter 1 and verse 5, And besides all this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to your virtues, virtue, gnosis, knowledge. That's verse 5. But in verse 8 he says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the epinosis of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that which changed gnosis to epinosis, the last couple of virtues, was brotherly kindness and love. And brotherly kindness and love turns gnosis into epinosis. Mere gnosis will inflate, mere knowledge will inflate, a proper comprehension of knowledge will build. Now our young men, particularly, I say our young men particularly go through those stages. And because they do, sometimes we get into trouble we, because a young brother might come into the truth and he's got a keen and a sharp mind and being young he, he can remember things pretty well and he quickly picks up the knowledge of the word, he reads the pioneers, he, he, he grasps the significance of that and, and he begins to expound the word and he, and he gets... He gets praised for that and he gets told he's a pretty good chap and, and in the end, you know, he, he, his knowledge puffs him up. It's almost inevitable. And it's wrong 
for the elders of the ecclesia to denigrate knowledge for that reason. Let him go. Let him go on learning. Yes, by all means, we need to keep these young fellows in their place. I had to be kept in my place like that, and I was kept in my place. Sometimes very embarrassing, but I had to take that. But don't ever discourage that knowledge because you can't get epinosis unless you've got gnosis. You have to go through that stage. But the day will come, brethren and sisters, when that young man will grow to a point where he'll understand what knowledge is all about and he'll start to build. And he'll be a mature brother that when he stands before an audience with his notes in front of him, he will say, he will know this, that before he's ever come to the platform, he will have said to himself, what I'm going to say today, will it be constructive? That's the ruling factor. Will it be constructive? That's epinosis. That builds, and that's love. That's knowledge with love, brothers and sisters. And you know this word edify, build up, Paul was, that was one of his favourite words. Uh, he uses it in, this, in Corinthians in chapter 14, verse 3, verse 5, verse 12, verse 7. And you know, it goes all the way through Paul's writing, edify, edify, edify. Build up. He's always building. But Paul was a positive builder, brothers and sisters. Even in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, or uh, 1 Corinthians 3 rather, when he talked about uh, the building of, of gold and silver and precious stones, or wood, hay and stubble, and he says both classes of builders will be saved. One's work will be destroyed because it's combustible. It goes up in flames. But the builder himself will be saved despite his poor workmanship because he at least built. He at least made an attempt to build. The only ones will be destroyed. It says, he that will destroy God's temple will be destroyed. God destroys the destroyers. But he loves builders, even those of poor quality who attempt to construct something in the ecclesia. Now, says Paul in chapter 8 and verse 2, if any man think he knoweth anything, he knows nothing as he, yet as he ought to know. You know, James said this, Who is a wise man and endued with understanding? Let him show forth in his manner of life meekness of wisdom. Where is he, says James? Where's the man with knowledge? Show me, he said, where he is. Well, you'll see him by the way that he lives and the way he applies his knowledge. That man really knows something. But Paul says, he that thinks he knows something, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. That's very important, brethren and sisters. But if any man love God, says Paul, the same is known of him. Now, you think about that. And what he's saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Whilst it is important that we come to know God, oh, it is far more important that God knows us. Now that's the critical factor. And there's only way that God is ever going to know us. And God knows, because of course, in any case, he's not talking about the, you know, the fact of just knowing we're talking about knowing, recognizing. 
Now, God may not know us in that sense. And we might know all about him. We might be some of the most brilliant lecturers in our ecclesia. We may be able to get up and refute the Trinity. We may know, brothers and sisters, there's only one God. We can, we can go back to the Hebrew when we know the usage of Elohim and, and Yachad, one, and we know how that that's used in, as this noun or whatever and in what sense it's used. We may be able to dissect the word so that we give an exact knowledge of God. To be told at the judgment seat, I never knew you. Why, says James, the devils know there's one God. The devils fear and tremble, he said. The madmen know that. We know who thou art. Jesus, they said, we know who thou art. The Holy One of God. They knew that. But wilt you know, he said, O empty-headed man, that faith without works is dead? And yet they had enormous knowledge, not of the, of the, of the imbecile. They had the knowledge of the sane. But James says you're empty-headed. Now you look at Galatians chapter 4 in this regard, brothers and sisters, just look at the way Paul puts it here. He says, in chapter 4 of Galatians in verses 8 and 9, he says, Look, how be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Now you listen to this next verse. But now, after that ye have known God, always says, or rather, are known of God. See the point? After that you have known God, or, or rather, are known of God. And it's a remarkable thing that a man can have exact knowledge of the fundamental that God is one and all about his character. He can know every characteristic of God. He can know Exodus 34. He, he can expound that with brilliance. And God may not know him. And he knows all about God, so he thinks. And the quality, brothers and sisters, if any man love God, there it is, there it is. So what does your studies of the Bible do? What does your studies of God... We talk about God manifestation. It's like a clinical term sometimes, when it really means making God plain in your life. God is made plain to people. Now, you can't do that unless you know him experimentally. Not only academically, but experimentally. You've got to know God, don't you? You've got to do that. And, and to know him, you cannot know God if, and not love him. It is impossible. And you can't love God without knowing him. Now, brothers and sisters, it is a simple fact. An incontrovertible, undeniable fact that you cannot love anyone you don't know. Husbands and wives out there, sitting out there, who are in love, how did you fall in love? Because you saw the picture of your wife or something? Or she wrote you a letter and say, Dear Bill, uh, it's raining where I am today and very cold. Love Mary. And you fell in love with her because of that? It isn't, isn't it? It's because you met together at some stage or other. You found that there was an instant compatibility in, in matters and you talked about the Bible perhaps and your attitude of the truth. You found here was someone that breathed your spirit and the way they laughed and the, and the way their eyes twinkled and, and their little mannerisms. 
And the way they showed their care for you and, and love blossom because you got to know that person. You could never have done that if you didn't know them. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know God, you don't love him. It is impossible. And so you see, Paul shows that they're indivisible things. If any man loves God, it means he's come epinosis. And therefore, if he knows God in that sense, God knows him. And that's the important thing. For God is love. Now that's a remarkable thing, really, when you think about it. Now we come to verses 4 to 7, where Paul agrees in principle with the strong. Now he says, brethren, in, in, in verse 4, he says, Look, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, you notice how he starts that twice? He said that in verse 1. But you see, what he did in verse 1, when he stated the, the subject matter he's dealing with, he stopped at a moment and said, hang on, I better qualify what knowledge is about. See? So he thought, it's no good launching this with the strong and saying, I agree with you because you've got the right knowledge, unless they understand what I mean by knowledge. So he restarts the subject, because verses 1 to 3 are a little aside, you see, to say, Paul, now let's get knowledge straight, hey? let, let, let's understand what I understand by knowledge. Now he says in verse 4, as concerning therefore the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know. It's, you're right, he says, an idol is nothing in the world, and, and there is none other God but one. Now that's so obvious, brothers and sisters. And you know, things offered unto idol. What's an idol? It's a bit of wood or a bit of metal. Now you, we won't turn this up, but Isaiah 44. It's a marvellous chapter. Isaiah 44 depicts this fellow, you know, and he, he goes out into the forest and he selects the very nice straight tree. Yes, that one looks very straight. And he cuts it down. Wipes his brow, he's perspiring. And he, he strips off the branches and he cuts the trunk in halves. And with one half he peels off the bark carefully and he gets to work with his carving knife and exquisitely, hours and hours of work, he works this image up, you see, the image of a God that he is making. And when it's made, he's going to worship the God, but it's a cold night. So he gets the other half and he chops it up into little bits of wood, carries them inside, puts them in the fire, brings his idol in there, lights his fire because it's cold, and warms himself with this bit of wood and then turns around and goes, Allah, 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 to the other and it can't see that that wood there is burning there. He's blind to the fact that that's the same wood there, that the same wood is there. This one he warms himself with, and that one he prostrates and worships. And he can't see that that piece of wood is what he made. He made it. If anything, it should worship him. And he's as blind as a bat to that. So Paul says, we know that it's rubbish. Like you take Isaiah 46. Let, let me read this to you. You just listen to this. Baal boweth down. These are the gods of Babylon. Neba, god of Babylon, stupid. Their idols were upon the beasts and upon your cattle. Your carriages were heavy laden. They are a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but themselves are gone into captivity. So here, here's the idols of Babylon, you see, and they're all worshipping the idols of Babylon. You know, going down their knees and chanting away for hours on end and cutting themselves with lancets and so forth. And then they want to move that idol from one place to another. So they yoke up the oxen, these great heavy metal things, they lift up, and they plop them on the cart, they can't move. 
and the ox straining the harness and go along, you know, it is a heavy load and they're moving that God from one place to another and it can't move. And beasts of burden are got to be put to strain. Men are got to strain their backs to get them up on the carriage and they're got to be carted from one place to another and they can't understand that that idol can't move. And God says, he says, but look unto me, Israel, I have borne you from the belly, from your mother's womb, I've carried you. Now there's the one we worship, the one who carries us, because we can't move. And that's the stupidity, brothers and sisters, of idolatry. Now Paul says, we know all that. Us brethren that's got the knowledge, we understand all that. That's clear, I agree with you, intellectually. And he goes on in verse 6. But unto us there is but one God the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And that's what they didn't know. You see, he says, but unto us there is but one God. But he didn't leave it there, brothers and sisters. He said there's one God, the Father. Oh, they didn't know that. Because you see, that whole ecclesia was his children. And they had forgotten that. He's not only one God, he's the Father. Now he goes on and he says, of whom are all things, not some things. And the all things are the weak and the strong. And he says, there's one Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the title, the full title of the man. So that he's not only Jesus coming with our nature, but now having gone through the experience of death and resurrection, he's the Christ. And he's the Lord, he's the king priest. And why is he is the king priest? That all things might be by him. All things, not only the strong, but the weak. And that's what they'd forgotten. And it was just like, you know, I had, well, I didn't had, all alive, I've got seven children. Now, now when, say that I've got five of them married, okay, and one lad's getting married next year, but, but when, say, my oldest girls, I had four girls first, when they got the teenage, they were a pretty year or so between them, it would come pretty quick. Now, imagine a lad coming into my house, and uh, he, he strikes up a relation with, my, with one of my girls. And I greet him into the house, and, and Auntie Verna says he's, he's welcome to come home. He's a good lad in the truth, and, and we, we, we think he, this could be a, a good thing for our daughter, and he seems to be a nice lad. Now, he's welcome home there, brothers and sisters. But he hasn't got the choice of saying, Uncle John, I don't mind Shirley, Beverly, and Valerie, but Coralie's a pain, and Colin I can't stand. Misha's all right, and Sam's a brat. He hadn't got that choice. Because he's, he's forgotten that I'm not only the head of the house, I'm their father. And he hasn't got a choice about which of my children he's going to like and which he's going to dislike. Now, I know Sam's a brat. <laughs> and I understand that Coralie's a pain and all that. I know that, but I'll handle that. But he hasn't got the choice to make that to make a discrimination between my children because I'm their dad and Annie Byrne is their mum. You see what I mean? So there's one God. But he's a father. 
And brothers and sisters, we're all in his family. I, I might be a pain in the neck to some of you, but I'm God's child. You try and deny that. Jesus died for me as much as he died for you. And you might be a pain in the neck for me. we just got to get on. God has not given us the choice to come into the ecclesia and select who we want to sit with and who we want to talk to. And he hasn't given us such a choice because he's the father of us all. The, the strong had forgotten that, you see. Uh, they didn't understand that. And so the apostle says, you've got to have that knowledge. Then he says in verse 7, Howbeit there is not in every man that knowledge. Not everybody is as brilliant as we are. Isn't it a pity? Shame, really. But, but they're not brilliant like we are. And some with conscience of the idol unto this hour, right now, says the apostle, it still exists, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. So they, they, they didn't all have that knowledge. And the knowledge was... The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, as he said in chapter 10. We finally come to that point. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. What on earth belongs to an idol? It's A, nothing in the world, and B, God owns the lot. Why, he even owned the, he owns the metal and the wood with the, which the idols are made. Now, we know that, says Paul, but not everybody knows that. Oh, they know it academically. Every brother says there's only one God. Every brother says that... There's no idol is really nothing. They all know that academically, but there's just that feeling, you know, they they got conscience of the idol. I wouldn't eat that because it it's been offered unto an idol. Now they know academically up here that an idol is nothing, but they can't come to grips with that in here. Now Paul says that they, they got a real problem. They got a real problem. And, and we've got to be alive for that problem, brothers and sisters, because for that brother to eat that meat with that conscience is sin. To you, you can do it, it doesn't matter. But if he does it, it's sin. Now, you've got to remember that. So Paul says, you take notice of his conscience. Which brings us to our last section. Liberty of conscience. Our conscience. People who know ought not to become a stumbling block to the, to the weak. Now, brothers and sisters, there are two irrefutable reasons why the strong ought on these questions, and I repeat again, not talking about fundamental issues, doctrinal or moral, you're not talking about that at all, forget that, talk about these other issues. There are two irrefutable reasons why the strong should always give away to the weak. Always. Not a question of saying... Oh, well, if he apologises, I'll apologise. If he moves, I'll move. That's not a question. It's a question, brothers and sisters, of always the strong giving way on these issues. And the reasons are these. That the strong says, there is no more wrong in eating. Any more is there any intrinsic value if I don't. It doesn't matter. So if I went down to the marketplace and I bought that meat, knowing it had been offered under an idol, if there's no challenge made about it, and I knew it, it, there's no sin in me eating it, and if I refuse to eat, there's no intrinsic value in refusing it. I've got room to move. But the weak were not like that. They didn't have any room to move. They couldn't eat it. You see? They were not indifferent to it. 
And therefore, brothers and sisters, they had no flexibility. They, they were painted into a corner. They can't move at all. Someone's got to move, and they can't. But the man who knows can. To him, it doesn't matter at all. So a brother comes home to our place for lunch. He's a strict vegetarian. And not only so, but he, 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 he'd be a little bit offended if, if others ate with him, uh, that, you know, that if they eat meat, he, he wouldn't have the right attitude. He'd think, oh, you know, I don't think this is right. Brothers and sisters, we all become vegetarians that day. It doesn't matter whether I have a steak or whether I don't. I've got room to move. That poor fellow's got nowhere to go. He's locked into his position. Now, if you want to see how this works, you listen to this. Here's the greatest example of it. Paul says this, Romans 15. We then that are strong, we, so he's with the strong intellectually, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let everyone please his neighbour to his good to edification, building up. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproached thee fell on me. And he doesn't say Jesus. He said Christ. And he chose the title of the strongest one of all. Even the Messiah had that attitude. And he came into the world, brothers and sisters, absolutely superior in every sense, in knowledge and in every way. He came into the world with a knowledge where he could justify what he did, because he did all those things that pleased the Father. And even him gave himself for the weak the just for the unjust. And what did he do? The reproaches of them that reproach thee, God, fell on me. Now, brothers and sisters, here's the point he's making, and you listen carefully. It's a magnificent point. The question here in Romans was that brethren had fallen out over diet, whether you eat meat or whether you didn't. And in their falling out together, uh, they were ab abusing each other. They were, they were shouting across the table, as it were, and accusing each other of apostasy, one with the other, and using all sorts of slander against each other. Now, what Paul is saying is this. The strong brother ought to take a pull on himself and realise that the other chap can't eat meat. It doesn't matter to him, and therefore he ought to realise that he ought to give way because his poor brother's conscience can't move, and he ought to make room for that conscience. And the example is Jesus Christ. But listen, there's a difference here. All Paul is asking them to do is to take it on the chin, the strong brother's got to take it on the chin when the weak brother accuses him of being an apostate because he eats meat. Take that kindly and sort of fob it off a bit and encourage the brother and try and help him and don't provoke his conscience. All that's asking him to do. Jesus was on the cross enduring insults to his father the reproaches of them that reproached thee God come on me 
And there he is, brothers and sisters, with them down on the foot of the cross, listening to their taunts, not about him only. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him. He said he was the son of God. Well, let God show that he's the son of God. And they cast into his teeth reproaches about his father. And there wouldn't have been a love in the world equal to it. And the hurt to the son of God, brothers and sisters, would be indescribable. And the temptation to defend his father would have been enormous. And he kept his teeth gritted together because he wanted to save the very people that were cursing his father. Now all Paul says, all I'm asking you, the strong to do, is to take insults well against yourself. And you say you're strong, he's the Christ. Now you think of that, brothers and sisters. You just think of what was going on on that cross. Is it difficult, therefore, for us who say we know to try and do something to help our poor brother? Is it difficult? When you consider that example, unbelievable. Paul says in verse 8, look, he says, uh, he says, meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither are we, if we eat not are we any worse. In other words, it's innocuous. We don't care. We've we, we got, no, we got room to move. He says, if, if, if we eat, we're not better. We, with no intrinsic value in eating. And if we don't eat, it's not wrong. He said, it doesn't matter to us. It's a non-issue with us. We've got room to move. But he said, you be careful that in the exercise of that liberty, you don't make a stumbling block to your weak brother. And he says, for if any man see you which has knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple. Oh, you see, it wasn't just buying it in the market, was it? He's gone up there. Shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat? You know what the word emboldened is? It's exactly the same word as edify. So we've edified our brother, edified him, built him up, to sin by our example each those things which are offered unto idols now brothers and sisters you're going to see in this argument oh it's absolutely magnificent you're going to see it turn on its axis like that as we go through chapters 9 and 10 it's beautiful how this is done and what Paul is going to show is this that when you chose to go up there where there were a thousand priestesses who were prostitutes to the goddess the Aphrodite Whose, whose religious rites were fornication, that's done religiously, imagine the powerful impact upon the flesh that would be. He says, when you go up there to do that, the argument is going to turn around in chapters 9 and 10 where the weak become strong and the strong become weak. Because of the exercise of their wonderful knowledge on how that they could justify doing this or that led them into extreme danger. And the timidity, brothers and sisters, of that brother who didn't have their vast understanding, his timidity became his defence. And isn't that true in life? That we allow ourselves to do those things which we think we can intellectually justify. And they take us, brothers and sisters, as our brother David has pointed out, into dangerous circumstances. Extremely same. And so this man was built up. And Paul says in verse 3, verse 11, and through your knowledge, 
by the use of your knowledge, he says, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. My brothers and sisters, it was by their, their, their knowledge they did that. So their knowledge proved destructive, didn't it? And because their knowledge proved destructive and not constructive, it was something else but love. What was it? It was pride. It was sheer arrogance and pride. If love, if knowledge destroys, it cannot be love. It has to be some other, some other vice. It's not that virtue. And so verse 1, you know, it, it's, it's wrong. Knowledge builds up. Well, if it destroys, it's got no love in it. And they wound the weak conscience of the brother for whom Christ died. And you know, brothers and sisters, the word there for wound the weak conscience is in the Greek, you strike a blow at your brother's weak conscience. It's like a boxer in the ring and, and he's got a man on the ropes. The man is pleading for mercy and he's, the boxer sees his weak spot and gives him one great biff under the lug and lays him out flat. And he's wounded the weak conscience for whom Christ died. And there was the Apostle Paul. You know, Acts says, breathing out threatenings and slaughters. That's not true, you know. The Greek says he was breathing them in. It wasn't as if he was breathing out against the believers. Paul's life was filled with bitterness. He was breathing into himself threatenings and slaughters. He was building up a bitterness against the Christians. And Jesus said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? For whom Christ died. Isn't that incredible, brothers and sisters? And this is the, po the point that's being made here. And he said, if you do that, you sin against Christ. For as much as you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren. Think of that. Who do you in your ecclesia, if you wrote a list of your membership, whatever the membership might be, whether it's 20 or 200 or 300, if you wrote a list, who would be on the bottom of the list? You wouldn't dare make it, would you? But if you did, imagine the list you'd make according to your judgment or my judgment. Well, Jesus said, look at the bottom of the list. You touch him and you touch me. But Paul's point was this. He says, look, wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world stands. What an attitude. I love that attitude. I just love the attitude like that. I reckon that's one of the loveliest attitudes, brothers and sisters. I know a lot of people like that. People who've got real epinosis, who love God and who are known of God. I'm certain they are. And they're the people who say, listen, I know this thing is it's just silly, really. doesn't matter. They don't see it as silly. doesn't matter to me. Therefore, I won't get in their way. I'll be a vegetarian for the rest of my life, if necessary. It matters not to me. I love people like that. You see them in ecclesial life as you go through the, the portals of, of your ecclesia. You see them. You see brothers and sisters everywhere that put aside all their personal preferences. That know the pettiness of people. They can see how petty people are, but they don't, they don't treat them with scorn or deride them or look down upon them as if they're second-grade citizens. But they're gentle with them. They try hard and they go out of their way that anything that they might see as a personal preference is out the window. What does it matter, brothers and sisters? What really matters is to get people into the kingdom of God. Now, I want to quote you the words of Brother Barley in his letter to the Corinthians. 
And I, I don't know whether I could find better words than these to finish this section than how he encapsulated the, 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 the feelings of the apostle. And this is what he said. And you listen. I quote, Paul was not the inflexible advocate of principles that could be intellectually justified, but the passionate champion of whatever was best to get men and women into the kingdom of God. Not the inflexible advocate, brothers and sisters, of principles that could be intellectually justified, but the passionate champion of whatever was best to get men and women into the kingdom of God. 